paste Hebrews 9, starting in verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Beyond the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded in the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of holy overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. But this is... But this, the Holy Spirit indicates, that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with the food and drink and various washings, regular regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without the blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promise, the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. This is the word of the Lord. This morning, I especially want to direct your words and eyes to verse 8, 8 through 10. Look at those words that were just read there in that text this morning. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that a new way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. The conscience of the worshiper. Conscience. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? I remember as a child, I had an incredibly sensitive conscience, which I thought was a curse when I was a child. In fact, I thought it was a curse longer than I was just a child. As I grew up into my middle school years and even into high school, it it seemed like a curse. Even, Even as I got into college and prepared, began to prepare for the ministry. It just, it just seemed such a burden to me and a weight to me. I remember, I, I remember as a child, this is, this is the kind of early preparation my conscience had and the way it worked. I remember as a child having a Kool-Aid stand and thinking I was breaking the law. I mean, I was a young kid. I was breaking the law because I wasn't paying sales tax. 
Literally, I, I got fearful inside thinking they're going to come after me. That's the kind of things that I would wrestle with. Um, picadillos, maybe you would call them. But they, they were real to me. And all through those growing up years, I wrestled with that conscience and, and seeing things and seeing connections. And I just felt guilty all the time. I remember um, my early college days wrestling with that. I just took it with me. I just kept wrestling with conscience. I, I couldn't rest in Christ, even though at, at age 18 at my high school auditorium, I gave my life to Christ. I didn't grow up in the church, but I was confronted with the claims of Christ and gave my life to Christ, began to follow him. In fact, went off to school to the ministry, to prepare for the ministry. But I couldn't, I couldn't fully shake that. I, I kept wrestling with doubt and, and fear and all of those kinds of emotions. I, I remember, this was before I went to college, but, but in my uh, later high school years, I came to Christ in February, went off to a summer camp that summer. It was a Youth for Christ camp, and Youth for Christ was instrumental in me coming to Christ. But I remember even then wrestling with some stuff. And, and just one night at that particular camp, going out on the hillside and just just crying out to God, why? Why am I wired this way? In fact, I remember thinking if I could just start over spiritually, maybe I'd get it right the next time. I, I was wrestling with stuff. I wasn't resting. Though I knew Christ had died and I'd embraced his death and all of that, I, I still was dragging along this conscience that could not be free totally. As I went, as I said, into my high school or my college days, I began preparing for ministry, and and finally it 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 continued to plague me. And so I would go to my college pastor weekly, literally weekly, and I and now I know what what sacrifices he was making to do that with me weekly. Because every time I would come back, it would be the same thing. It was making no progress, and it was, it was almost as though I was walking into his office, kind of a confessional, and then I could walk out and be free, but it didn't last very long. And, uh, and one of the things, and the places he went, I, I loved him. He was a wonderful man. He was one of, uh, a wonderfully godly man, full of scripture, but, but he didn't go the right place for me. I've shared this before. He, he would go to my sincerity. In fact, one of the things he would do when I would come into his office is he would just affirm my sincerity. I was probably one of the only people in my college class who was doing this weekly with the pastor. And, and, it, and what he would do is just kind of pat me on the back and say, you're okay, you're okay. You're just, you're sensitive. I'm grateful for your sensitivity. I'm grateful for people like you. But... It, I would I continued to wrestle. It didn't it didn't solve anything. It didn't help me when he would talk about my sincerity or my my uh, sensitivity. And and what I really needed, he didn't give me. What he what I really needed more than anything else was lacking. It was the gospel. I needed the gospel. I needed to hear it again and again. I needed to really hear it. In fact, what I needed was texts like this one in Hebrews. I needed this Hebrews text to be explained to me. That's the kind of medicine I needed for that conscience. And here it talks about in two different places the conscience. It talks about, as I read in verse um, 9, 
that the sacrifices cannot perfect the conscience. And if you go over a little farther, it says in verse um, 14, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. I needed him to deal with my conscience with the only thing that could truly heal it and help it. And that was the gospel, the gospel of Christ. Things like come out of Hebrews. And so this morning, I want to do that for you. I want to take this text and and maybe you wrestle with some things. Maybe you wrestle with resting in God. Maybe your conscience plagues you. And you need to hear this this morning. You need to hear it and let it be a healing balm to you. Literally, what I was doing in those days as I had come to Christ at age 18 and gone off to prepare for ministry, I was, I was in many ways living in an Old Testament paradigm. I was living below what God wanted me to live at, the level that he wanted me to function in my Christian life at. He, he didn't want me to live in this Old Testament paradigm that had kind of a vague idea of forgiveness but didn't know what it was rooted in. It certainly was not rooted in my sincerity and my sensitivity. It's rooted in Christ. It's rooted in what he has done. And I needed somebody just to keep telling me that until it sunk into my heart. I think there are many followers who live that way. We live in an Old Testament paradigm. I I don't de-Christianize them And I don't de-Christianize you if you wrestle there. I didn't de-Christianize myself. I think I truly was a believer in Christ, but I wasn't appropriating all of the promises that I needed to appropriate in my life at that point. I think I'd truly come to faith. But I was living as though the holy place, that's what this text talks about, as if the holy place had not yet been fully opened. And I was attempting to open it up myself when it already was open, and I just need to experience the openness through Christ, I was attempting to kind of do ways, things to open it up. Look at the contrast here in this text. If you read with me verses 8 through um, 11 there, or 8 through 10, in in verse 8 it says, the verse before it says, by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened. In the Old Testament context, in the Old Covenant context, the holy place was not fully open. That's what this book is talking about. That's what Hebrews is talking about. And really what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, don't go back there. Don't live there. These people who had come to Christ, these Jewish Christians who'd begun to follow Christ, were were going back to an old paradigm. They were in danger of going back and living at that level. And he said, that's no place to go. Because the holy place has not been opened there. So don't go back there. And, and that's what they were attempting to do. Now in verse 11, it says a change comes. It says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, he entered. He entered once and for all into the holy place. So in the first part of this, it hasn't been opened in the old covenant. But when Christ came, it changed. It changed. Let's, let me give you some context, and then let's make some application of this. You see, the tabernacle picture that we get in chapter 9, it's important to see it. It would have been helpful for me to see it. In the, in the old covenant, under the old covenant, and as, as somebody would have shown that to me at the point where I was at, I think I would have saw that I was living at the wrong place. But in the old covenant, the picture that we get here is of God coming to the Israelite people. 
and establishing a tabernacle. Tabernacle was, was representative of God among them. It's where God dwelt. And the tabernacle went with them. Wherever they traveled in their journeys and their wanderings, the tabernacle went with them. Later, it became the temple. But here it's talking about the tabernacle. Tabernacle was just the forerunner of the temple. But the tabernacle, though it was more ornate and beautiful, it was designed in the same way, after the same pattern. And the way the tabernacle was designed is it had an outer room and it had an inner room. It had a holy place, and then it had the holy of holies, the inner sanctum where God dwelt. And so every day, a priest was selected to go into the holy place and to give make an offering and present an offering there in the holy place. But only once a year could the high priest, after a week-long preparation, enter into the holy place, the holy of holies where God dwelt. And all that was to picture, all that was to show us that God was holy, that, that we were sinful, and that it was going to take blood to do something about that dilemma. That's what the picture was. But the scripture says very plainly, by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing. In other words, as long as the, the, the temple is still standing, as long as the tabernacle is still being used, you, you, you don't have access. But, but when Christ came, it changed. When he came, the shift happened. And that's what verse 11 talks about. It says, by when Christ appeared as high priest, he is the fulfillment of all that the other pictured. Now, last week, go back with me. We talked about the old covenant being contrasted with the new covenant. The new covenant promise of Jeremiah that we concluded with last week that you find there in verses 8 through 12. At the end of that whole promise, at the beginning it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll do something new. And what he did was the sending of Christ and a new establishment of a, of a, of a new place that is opened up, which is in heaven. But it says in that text, God is going to do something new. In verse 12 it says, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. That was just a vague idea for people in the Old Testament. They, they knew God had promised to be merciful. Uh, they knew that he would not remember their sins, but they had no idea, no concept really of how that, how that was going to happen, how it would, would occur. And so people who lived in the Old Testament era, though they knew God had made that promise and, and God's people were those who looked ahead to that promise, lived in a, in a world that we sometimes think we'd like to live in. As I said last week, it would have been easier to live than it wouldn't have been easier to live because it was a, a vague, it, it had not come to true fruition. They, they didn't see it fully. They never fully felt forgiven. They always lived in that issue of, of not quite there yet. They didn't know the reality truly of the rest that comes when Christ comes. They lived much like I lived in an Old Testament sense, that yes, I know Jesus came, I know he died, but I didn't really know what it meant totally. I didn't, I didn't really understand really what he had done fully. And I think for Christians, many live there. 
that, yeah, Jesus died, but we don't know why it makes a difference. We don't know, really know why it, it takes away our sin and why it allows us access. That's what Hebrews is about. It tells us why. It tells us what these pictures point to. And I believe with all of my heart that we need to know that. We need to know what it says in Hebrews. We need to know what comes after verse 11. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want us to look at that. I want us to see what it, it says there because otherwise we will make attempts. We will make attempts, I think, to perfect our own conscience. We will think it's kind of up to us to do that. And many people do that today. Many people try to perfect their own conscience, somehow clean it themselves. It happens in many different ways. One of the ways they do it is to bring God down. They'll try to bring God down to their, to their level, or at least down a few notches off of who he really is. Some people do that by just outright denial. I mean, some people just deny him. And so they bring him down by saying he doesn't exist. They suppress the truth. By just believing he doesn't exist. Just believing that his standard of holiness, of perfection, just doesn't even exist. It's not there. They take the atheist route. And that's increasing in our day. I don't know if you are aware of it, but there's an increasingness of militant kind of atheistic kind of teaching cropping up all around us. The more that our society moves to a secular bent the more that crops up. I don't know if, how many of you recently have watched um, the Sioux Falls news stations, particularly Kelloland. Oftentimes there will be advertisements that talk about this group that meets in Sioux Falls and they'll, they'll, they'll use a, a kind of a billboard that has a fish on it and the symbol for Christianity with, with a derogatory kind of idea of, of legs and Darwin and all of that. You probably have seen those advertisements for lots of different things, but it's, a, it's the militancy. There's a militancy of people who are trying to bring God down, trying to solve and salve their conscience, really. They don't realize they're doing that, but they're trying to somehow just erase the standard, erase the holiness of God out of the picture so that they can live with a conscience that is free. It's an attempt to have a free conscience, although they certainly would deny that probably if you said it to them. But the Bible says they suppress, they suppress the knowledge of God in unrighteousness. That's what Romans says. And there are people who do that. There also are people who, who don't want to go that far. They, they don't want to go as far as totally wiping God off the map. But what they will do is they will rewrite what he said. In other words, they will come to try to bring God down and bring his standard down and his holiness down by just kind of rewriting what he said or reinterpreting what he said, if you will, taking his word and trying to, to, to undermine it and cause it to not be trusted and cause it to, to be twisted in ways that will fit the level and where they want to live. Um, you see this often with people who, who be oftentimes may grow up in, in evangelical churches like this who believe that the scriptures are our rule of, of uh, faith and that they need to undergird what we believe and we, we look to them and we trust them. And many times what they will have to do before they can really throw away their Christian faith and, and the things that they've been taught and, and, and raised with is they first have to somehow attack scripture 
have to get rid of that standard. And then what will often happen is once they do that, they will claim to be Christian. They will find churches that do that and begin to gather and, and, and really muddy the waters because they will name the name of Christ. But in order to live with their conscience, they have undermined his word and they don't live by any sense of the scriptures being their standard. Watch that time and time again. They have to first debunk scripture in order to try to salve their conscience. So that's, they'll try to bring him down. The other way that we do it is we try to raise our performance up to time, somehow salve our conscience. Sometimes somehow get that conscience that keeps nagging at you. If you can lower the standard, you can think you can help it. But if you can raise up your level of performance, you also, so you begin to rationalize sin. You begin to say, well, it really wasn't sin or, or my motive was pure even though my action was wrong. And so they begin to twist things and begin to, to rationalize their sin, that they're not as sinful as they really are. Or they begin to practice dead works. As it says here, one of the things we'll come to is serve um, purify our conscience from dead works, it says in verse 14. They try to do things to raise up their performance, to rest in. So they either try to do two of two things to get rid of consciences, lower the standard or raise our estimation of our performance. The problem is in that area of raising the level of our performance are texts like this in Hebrews. Because one of the things that it says that the high priest goes but once a year and he offers blood for himself and for the unintentional sins in verse 7. The unintentional sins of the people. That's a problem to people who've tried to somehow rationalize their sin. Say, well, it wasn't. We, we in many ways are so permeated by sin that we do it and we don't even know we've done it. We don't even have the ability to rationalize it because we don't even know we did it. It's unintentional. There was a, a, an offering for unintentional sin here in the Old Testament. I think, to show the pervasiveness of sin, the sinfulness of man. And so, though they may attempt to, to bring him down or to raise up their performance, it's to no avail. That's not going to work. And uh, the remedy is not to do either one of those things. The remedy, the remedy that I needed as a child and as a teenager and as a young adult, the remedy I needed was not to lower the standard, not to have my performance overestimated, not to have somebody come say you're sincere and uh, you're sensitive and all of that and you're a good person. I didn't need him to tell me that. What I needed him to do was point me to the Savior. I needed them to point me to the Savior. I needed them to take the text here and tell me that the way has been opened. You see, part of that conscience, part of what, what plagues us is, is we know there's a barrier. We know that our sin is a barrier to the holiness of God. We know that inherently. And as much as we try to push it off, as much as we try to say that it's not so, we can't. We can suppress it. People suppress it down, but it's there. So the remedy is not to bring him down or to overestimate our performance. The remedy is to see the Savior. And so here's what the text says. Here's what it says Christ did. Let me show you what the Savior did. It says, But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, 
then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place. He entered into the holy place, not the tent, not the tabernacle. That was only a picture. He entered into the true tent in heaven. Christ entered into the true tent. You need to hear that if you're struggling with your conscience. He entered into the true tent. How did he do it? The scripture says he entered into the true tent once and for all into the holy place, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. By his blood, he entered in. He was the sacrifice. He, he entered into the true tent by his own blood. And then it says, thus securing an eternal redemption. Thus securing an eternal redemption. What I needed to hear is that there was access. Not by bringing God down, not because he was less than holy, and not because I was better than I thought I was and somehow could merit it. I needed to hear people say that Christ merited it and that we can enter in with him. That's how we get in. We, we are with him. If we're in Christ, we too enter into the holy place by virtue of his life. And I needed to hear that again and again and again. You see, the danger is that uh, we try to find other ways to remedy our conscience. And you can't do it. You, you literally can't do it. There's an illustration that I want to uh, use this morning that I've used a number of times, but it takes a bit of time to set it up. And it's not meant to bring undue pain here this morning. Um, and it references one sin of many that we can participate in. And it's certainly not the ultimate. But a few years ago, when, when I was um, starting to see some of these things and starting to relish the gospel and really beginning to see what Christ had done and how he entered in and, 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 and really cherish the gospel, I remember hearing a pastor praying on Sanctity of Life Sunday. This is, this is a Sunday that's set aside in many churches where they, they talk about the, uh, the, the whole aspect of abortion and how, how, how devastating it is and how, how the church needs to rise up to declare the sanctity of life. But during the pastoral prayer time on that particular Sunday morning, I remember listening to this pastor pray and he said this, He said, may the sting of their sin drive them to the Savior. And I thought, oh, I'm not sure I would do that. I'm not sure that's what I would do. And then I realized that in reality, that's the right thing to do. You see, because in this particular instance, and we can take lots of different things. This is just one aspect. But in this particular instance, oftentimes when the issue of abortion there are people who are victims. There certainly are victims. And certainly the, 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 the aborted child is a victim. But, but in many cases, the, the mother's a victim. I mean, she's a victim in the sense that people come to her and they counsel her and she's emotional and, and gets moved down a road sometimes by people saying it's okay and 
you need to do this and and now our laws change to allow it to happen and they just get pushed down this thing and so they are victims there's no doubt about that in many ways and we need to be careful and be sensitive and be compassionate about that and try to help them in any way we can but it's more than just being a victim. You see, because what can happen is if, if they buy into the victim thing, anytime their conscience begins to accuse them, anytime it starts to rise up in their soul and they start to feel guilty, they just go back and say, well, I was a victim. It, it, it's really not my fault. It was their fault. It's because the laws are the way. And so they push it off. And so that can saw, put a kind of patch over their conscience for a while and, and they'll go along for a while and then something will bring it to light again. And they feel the, the sting of that again. And so they go back to the same remedy. Well, I, I really, you know, I really just got pushed down the road. It really wasn't my choice. It was somebody else. Different circumstance. It would have been different if they hadn't done this. And all of that's in many ways true. Our society does cause them to be victims, but it's more than that. And if all they ever do is go back to the, to, the, to the idea that I'm a victim, they'll never really get healed. It'll never go away. Their conscience will never be free. And we can take lots of different things that way. You can take multitudes of things like that that you have experienced in your past, multitudes of sins. And if you play the victim card, if you play the idea of trying to just raise up my performance, raise it really wasn't as bad as it was, That'll maybe help for a little while. I remember times when I would have that conscience come to me and I would remember things. I would think, well, it really isn't that bad. And, and, but, you know, and I'd go along for a while and the pastor would come and say, I'm sincere and I'm sensitive and that would help for a while. But then it would come back to me. And the only thing that will literally heal it is what that pastor prayed. Whatever sin it is, may the sting of your sin drive you to the Savior because when the Savior takes it, you're free. When you come to the point of acknowledging your sin and putting it on Christ, then true freedom comes. Anything short of that leaves you in bondage. Anything short of that does not free you. The only real remedy is that we would feel the sting that would be run to the Savior. And there we would find what the Scripture says, an eternal redemption. An eternal redemption. This morning, I don't know if you're struggling with conscience. Maybe you've already run to the Savior. Maybe you've already let Him be your access into the holy place. But chances are that there are some here today who even as I talked about conscience, even as I talked about past, you have things that hold you in bondage. You have things that rise up to you. And maybe you've tried to say, well, it, it, God doesn't care that much or I really was a victim. I don't know what card you want to play, but the temptation is you try to bring him down or you raise up your performance. You say it wasn't as bad. And as long as you play that game, you'll never be free. As long as you do that, you'll never fully get free. The most gracious thing God ever did to me and for me, and I know it now, I didn't like it then, was to give me the kind of conscience he gave me early on. The thing that I thought was a curse 
was the thing that ultimately helped me to see the glory of Christ. And so today you may have something that comes to your mind and you think, oh, oh, I just wish this had never occurred. It's a curse to me. I can't get free of it. And I would say to you this morning, the very curse that you see it as may be the gift God has given you to set you free. The fact that you can't shake it, the fact that you can't wrestle away from it, the fact that it continues to come back to you no matter how often you try to salve it over, smooth it over. The remedy is Christ. The remedy is let the sting, let the sting of that drive you to the Savior who gives you an eternal redemption. Eternal. Forever. He will give it to you. But you need to go to him. The scripture then says two things to us that happen when that happens. At the end of verse 14, it says, He purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. He purifies us from dead works, the works of raising up our performance, bringing him down, trying to do things to merit and appease him. He frees us from that, frees us from all that jockeying, all that kind of manipulating, all that kind of working around to somehow keep a cover over your conscience. The remedy is let it break through. Take the cover off. Acknowledge for what it is. Acknowledge your sin and run to the Savior. And that's where true freedom comes. That's where you find freedom. That's where I could find, finally find freedom and rest for my soul. And the interesting thing that it says, you will purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. One of the things that, that happened in the midst of that, whenever you're living that way, whenever you're wrestling with that and not resting in your God, the energy you need to serve him and to follow him, you're putting into that. And one of the things that you get freed up to is energy to serve the living God, to serve him not in somehow to, to, to merit your salvation, not in somehow to appease your conscience, but because your conscience is free, because you see that Christ has secured your entrance into the holy place. He alone has done that. This morning, I don't know where you're at, but uh, I would suspect in a group like this, there's somebody who's hearing what I'm saying. And you've been doing all kinds of things to, to just get free. The remedy is Look to Christ. Let the sting of whatever you're feeling this morning cause you to flee to Christ. Quit attempting to rationalize. Quit attempting to bring him down and let him be the remedy. The worship team is going to come this morning and we're going to sing a song that talks about I will glory in my Redeemer. I hope this morning that you can sing it from your heart. And if there is a sense in which there's something that's holding you back from singing it with all of your heart, I pray you'll take it to the Savior. I pray you will allow Him to be the one who obtained your eternal redemption. Let's stand together as the worship team leads us. will glory in my Redeemer, whose priceless blood has ransomed me. Mine 
was the sin that drove the bitter nails and hung him on that judgment tree. And I will glory in my Redeemer who crushed the power of sin and death. My only Savior before the Holy Judge, the Lamb who is my righteousness. The Lamb who is my righteousness I will glory in my Redeemer My life He bought, the love He owns I have no longings for another I'm satisfied in Him alone I will glory in my Redeemer, His faithfulness, my standing place. Though foes are mighty and rush upon me, my feet are firmly by His grace. My feet are firm held by His grace. I will glory in my Redeemer Who carries me on eagle's wings He crowns my life with loving kindness His triumph song I'll ever sing And I will glory in my Redeemer Who waits for me at gates of gold And when He calls me it will be Paradise His face forever to behold His face forever to behold The promise of the new covenant is this For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. That's the promise. The Old Testament picture, they didn't fully understand how that was going to come to be. But we do. It's in Christ. And if he has entered into the holy place and you put your hope in him, you enter with him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'll help us. Pray that you'll help those who are wrestling this morning with conscience. I'm grateful, Lord, for that this morning. I'm grateful that that you are troubling them and pray, Father, they will not they will not rest until they have run to Christ. That they'll quit fighting to to take care of the conscience in the wrong way. But Lord, may the sting of their sin drive them to the Savior. We're grateful, Lord, for the rest that that causes in our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.